Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the 26th of June, 2019 Hong Kong Stories podcast. I'm Rachel Smith. Oh, it's very hot out there, and you could spend your time dodging from aircon to aircon, or you could wear your loosest, lightweight clothes and sweat it out on the streets. Visitors to our cities might be forgiven for looking a little wilted. And I often wonder what their impressions of us Hong Kongers must be, with our summer clothes and spare sweater for indoors. This week, as we perspire gently all day and all night, we'll be listening to a story from Charlene about her experiences in a new place. After Charlene, we'll hear again a story from Frida, who also travelled to exciting places. Before we get to the stories for this week, though, we'd like to extend a huge thank you to our loyal listeners in Hong Kong. We couldn't be prouder to live and work in this city, with all its variance and its spirit. Thanks for listening to go out to our international listeners, like those in Athens, Greece, Montreal, Canada, and Alexandria in Australia. Thanks for letting our stories into your ears. Our next live show is today, June twenty-sixth, and the theme this month is rewind. It's being held in our usual home of the Hong Kong Fringe Club. Come and watch the storytellers as they share their stories live. Get tickets through the website at HongKongStories.com. Hong Kong Stories—it's better than comedy. It's better than drama. It's real life. And now for my January two thousand nineteen show. With the theme "New Territories," here is Charlene. Where shall we go? About ten years ago, when I was still in college, my friends and I were talking about our upcoming summer vacation plan. It was a burning hot day in Beijing, and we couldn't wait to get rid of the scorching heat in the city as soon as possible. And a holiday, so only two weeks away. New York, you've just been there, haven't you? Singapore,、mm, a little bit boring. <laughs> Japan,、mm, after one hour discussion, we haven't got an answer. And Marine finally put out her iPad and pointing out and opened a world map, asking, "Hey guys." I think we should come up with an idea ASAP. Otherwise, it will be too late. Cause we need to book our flight tickets and we need to get a visa. And I think you guys may know, as a Chinese passport holder, you need to get a visa to go, you know, most of the countries in the world. I don't need to further explain, okay? <laughs> and I really want to go to somewhere that we none of us have been to, Africa. Oh, it would be too far, and it might be dangerous. Let's stay in Asia. Okay, let's stay in Asia. We finally reached an agreement. But where in Asia? Jane pointed out to、um, pointed to a country near India. Where is it? Bangladesh. Oh my God, where is Bangladesh? <laughs> I haven't heard of it. I heard it in news. Some U.S. companies they moved their factories from China to some other emerging countries like Vietnam and Bangladesh, a country with cheaper labors, 
That's all we knew about Bangladesh back then. A few days later, we got our visa, and we were totally, completely shocked. It's a completely handwritten visa without a sticker or a label. It said, Shaolin Chong, birthday, blah, blah. You are authorized to enter Bangladesh um, from July 25th to August 25th, something like that. And a few days later, at the airport, ended up only me and Marine, ditched by Jane and another friend whose parents didn't allow them to go in the end. <laughs> and without doing any you know, further research or having any idea what to expect, we finally you know, landed in Dhaka airport after six hours flight. And you know, when I stepped out of the airport, I was shocked again because everyone was staring at us like this. What's going on? I asked Marie because she got much more traveling experience than me. And she said, don't worry, because you are exotic. <laughs> They're not trying to be rude. Calm down. Okay, 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 I'll follow you. And you know, over the following week, wherever we went, and there are always people staring at you like this, with a big smile. It makes me feel like, oh, I'm a Hollywood movie star, which was my dream back then. And, um, you know, we were offered to go to people's home for tea or for seeing their newborn baby lambs. And, um, you know, whenever we, we stood on the corner of the street looking around, there are always people coming along asking you, um, are you lost? And do you need any help? And do you know where you are going? You know, people are so nice. And to be safe... We stayed in a so-called five-star hotel um, near Chinese consulate. And um, <laughs> to be safe, <laughs> we need help, right? And, and, you know, compared with the shabby houses around, the hotel looks conspicuously outstanding there. Uh, let's go to Dhaka University. You know, as, um, as we were still college students, we were so excited about uh, university life and how would that be, you know, in Dhaka. Okay, let's go there. Um, can you send us to Dhaka University? Dhaka University? Okay, get in. Instead of taking a taxi, we got into a three-wheel rickshaw. And after a few minutes, I started to feel a little bit scared. Because the streets that we had been so quiet without so many people. And I asked Marine, do you think the guy is going to sell us in black market? <laughs> I said, you're feeling so scared. And Marine said, oh, calm down. How much do you think you are worth? <laughs> you know, after a while, I finally felt a little bit relieved because the road, you know, started to, you know, get a little bit wider. And finally, we got to Dhaka University. And I checked the meter. It says 200, and I was about to pull out my purse and paid. And the guy turned around. 500? Oh, 500? Is that 200? 500, please, he insisted. But 
No, it's unfair just because we're foreigners and you're cheating, right? And um, 500, please. You know, he said it again. And you know, during that time, I was a little bit scared and I was pissed off at the same time as you make. And, and we were kind of at the center of a street and there are the cars and rickshaws waiting for us, impatiently beeping. And I just gave him 500. Marine told me. And I could feel like she was a little bit scared as well. And what if he drags us down and beats us up, right? And you know, all of a sudden, some local guys came over. They were in black t-shirt. Oh, they're fucked up, Marine. They must be gangsters. What's going on here? And one guy talked to us. And they spoke English. And we tried to explain to them, and they seemed to understand. I said, hold on. And they talked to the guy in a local language that we didn't understand. And after a few minutes, and they turned to us, I said, okay, it's done. Just 200. It's okay. Friends, my friends, have a nice day. Enjoy your life. Okay, thanks. Oh, my God, they saved us. But we thought they were gangsters, and we, we felt so grateful. You know, one week in Dhaka was too short, and we finally got back to school after that. And uh, whenever our teachers or friends heard that we'd just been to Bangladesh, they just didn't understand. Why? Why Bangladesh? And the answer is always, we don't have to go to a metropolis to spend our holiday, just like the Bangladeshi people. They don't have to have a lot of material wealth to be happy and kind. Thank you. Wealth is certainly not a good measuring tool for kindness. And kindness can be found in any society, irrespective of their circumstances. People are, on the whole, pretty decent if you give them the space and the time to flourish and grow. We give time to flourish and grow at our free weekly workshops, held most weeks in Hong Kong. If you'd like to join us, please check the website at hongkongstories.com to find out how. Our second story today is about traveling to a new place, but Frida finds it slightly less comfortable in the end. With a story first told in 2017, here is Frida. Arriving in Kabul, I'm not quite sure what to expect. Is this going to be a land of blue burqas and wild beards and bombs that we see on TV? Or is it going to be a land of brave warriors and beautiful women and high art and culture that we read about in history and literature? Our briefing at the Pakistan Embassy seems to suggest the former. Don't take photos, they warn us. Don't go out after dark. Don't talk to anyone. And to emphasize their point, they tell us harrowing tales of people who've been picked up by the notorious security service, the NDS, whisked away only to return with deep physical scars or psychological scars, or worse still, never to return at all. 
And hearing their stories, I'm almost glad that we, that's me, my husband, and Dr. Manzoor, who's Pakistan's ambassador to the World Trade Organization, are only there for a short while to attend a trade fair, and then we'll go back home safe to Pakistan. So the next day, we go to the trade fair, spend about an hour walking around, and then we're free with the whole day ahead of us empty. We have a car and a local driver, and though we doubt it, we ask him that is there anything to see here in Kabul? Yes, he says, of course. Don't you know, Kabul used to be the greatest city in the world. We've had very bad times, but things are getting better again. As we say in Afghanistan, after every darkness, there is light. And to illustrate his point, he takes us to Bagh Babur, the royal gardens, where the first Mughal emperor of the subcontinent is buried. During his time, Babur ruled over a vast empire and great riches, but it was always Kabul he yearned to go back to. His tombstone today carries the words that he used to describe Kabul. If there is a paradise on earth, it is this, it is this. And when he built these gardens more than 500 years ago, he built them according to his vision of paradise, with green terraces and waterways and orchards of pomegranates and apricots and almonds and grapevines. And centuries later, his gardens of paradise were turned into a theater of war. During the 1990s, these gardens were bombed and plundered and left in ruins. And over the past several years, conservationists and craftspeople have been working to restore the gardens to their original beauty and open them to the public as a park. So now when we look out over the gardens, we see all sorts of people everywhere enjoying themselves. University students, girls and boys out sitting together having a picnic. Children running around, families sitting together warming themselves under the winter sun. I'm about to take a photo, but my driver stops me. They are watching, he says, when I say, it's okay, we're fine. He says, no, they are watching. Who, I wonder? The gods? The Americans, he explains. And I look up, and then I see it. It's a white blimp, the dirigible. It's an American military surveillance balloon, ever-present in the skies of Kabul, scanning the land below with a camera said to be so strong that it can read the time of your wristwatch. Next, he takes us to the National Art Gallery. It's in the middle of the city, crowded with cars and people, dust and noise. But the art gallery itself is an oasis of peace, set in an old mansion surrounded by beautiful gardens. The gallery staff rush to welcome us, drawing back dusty curtains to let in the light, looking for keys to unlock the rooms of the gallery. And as we walk through the gallery, they tell us how just a few years earlier, the Taliban had walked through some of these rooms, and they had slashed and destroyed more than 200 paintings because they showed human figures, something that went against their religious code. And how the gallery staff, many of them artists themselves, had tried to save what they could by painting over the figures, turning faces into flowers, turning bodies into trees. And now that things were getting better again, they'd begun the painstaking work of removing those protective layers of paint and letting the figures re-emerge again. Soon it's back time to go back to the hotel, and our driver drops us off, but we've had such a good day, and we've had so many interesting conversations, we're simply not ready to go back to our hotels and spend a long evening in front of the TV. My husband suggests we take a walk around the neighborhood, and so we do joining the throngs of people on the wide pavements, old trees branching overhead. 
Before long, we come across a small bookshop. It has a turquoise-painted wooden front and large windows, and through the windows we can see piles of books stacked on the shelves, on the floors, running up along the wooden staircase. There's an old man sitting behind a desk. There's maps and artwork up on the walls. And with the golden light spilling out into the darkening evening where we stand, it looks like a bookshop from a book. And as we read the name, we realize it is a bookshop from a book. It's the bookshop from the book, The Bookseller in Kabul. <laughs> the, writer had spent, the writer had spent several months living with this bookseller during the Taliban years, and then she had written about her time with him and his family in a book. In it, she praised him for being a local hero, for continuing his book-selling business and becoming a clandestine supplier of titles that the Taliban had banned. But she also showed him as a tyrannical head of household, quite ruthless with his wives and children. Excited by our discovery, we do what anyone would do. We take a photo. I stand in front of the bookshop. My husband takes out his mobile phone. Dr. Manzur takes out his mobile phone. They take a photo of me, put their phones back, and we move on. Or I should say we try to move on, because as I'm standing there waiting to cross the road, first of all I hear a shout, which I ignore, and then I feel something against my shoulder. And I look back and I see a man standing there behind me with a uniform, and the thing on my shoulder is the tip of a rifle. I'm not sure what to do, so I smile and I indicate to him that I'm about to cross this road, so I am going to walk away from him <laughs> and his rifle. <laughs> He shakes his head. I turn back to look for my husband and Dr. Manzoor, and they too are now accompanied by men with guns, and we're being led, <laughs> we're being led towards, this, towards this building with tall, thick walls like a fortress, and there are watchtowers along the top of the wall, and in the watchtowers there are men standing there, and their guns are also trained on us. And as we go through the gate, I read the name, and this is the headquarters of the National Defense Service, the notorious NDS that we'd been so diligently warned against. They take us inside, and it's a sort of a, uh, sort of a yard, and they make us line up against a wall. It's a white wall, but I'm quite concerned to see that it's streaked with red stains. And we, we stand there under a weak yellow light from a single light bulb suspended above our heads. The NDS men stand in front of us. They say something to us we don't understand, and we reply with something they don't understand. I suggest we communicate in single words. Dr. Manzoor goes first. Pakistan, he says. Then my husband. Bhai, bhai, he says, hoping that the word for brother in Pakistan is the same in Afghanistan. They turn to me. Sorry, I say, and I roll my eyes in the direction of my husband, trying to tell them that whatever has happened, and we have no idea what has happened, it's all my husband's fault. <laughs> <laughs> and they should just take him away. <laughs> and let me and Dr. Manzoor go free. None of this makes any difference, but they do seem to like the idea of communicating in single words. The senior NDS man steps forward, he puts his hand out, and he says, passport. So we hand over our passports. Then he says, phone. So my husband hands over his phone, Dr. Manzoor hands over his phone, even though it's a new super smartphone. 
I don't have a phone. So I just say sorry again and roll my eyes in the direction of my husband. <laughs> the man holds out Dr. Mansoor's phone and says, photo. So now we have an idea that this is something to do with the photo, probably, that they took of me outside the bookshop. Dr. Manzur steps forward to unlock his phone, but the problem is that he has about 700 photos on his phone, and it's a new phone, so he's still not very familiar with how to use it, so he can't immediately locate that photo. So we all gather round around his phone under this weak yellow light bulb in a circle, and we go through each photo, <laughs> one by one. There are several photos of the inside of Dr. Manzur's mouth. <laughs> And Dr. Manzur mimes to show us how he had a toothache and how he'd taken photos to send to his dentist. Our captors look at him with concern and make sympathetic noises. <laughs> then there are a series of identical photos of a couple at a wedding. Our captors look at the photo, you know, seem to wish them well. And by the time we've gone through this detailed chronicle of Dr. Manzur's daily life, the atmosphere has become quite convivial. <laughs> and then comes the photo. There's me standing outside the bookshop. It's dark, it's grainy, quite unremarkable. But the NDS officers, through their tone and through their gestures, make it quite clear that they want us to delete this photo. But try as we might, we simply cannot delete this photo. <laughs> The phone either goes back to camera mode or gallery or home screen or some funny filter. I try, my husband tries, Dr. Manzur tries, each man in this circle from the NDS tries. But this photo refuses to be deleted. <laughs> Eventually, someone does manage to delete the photo. And the whoosh of the departing image mirrors the sigh of relief that we let out. With the photo gone, passports and phones are handed back, handshakes are exchanged, smiles all around, a car appears, and finally, two hours later, we're escorted back to our hotel. As our driver had said earlier in the day, after every darkness, indeed, there is light. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's stories brought to you by Hong Kong Stories. The music for this podcast was created and performed by Andrew Robert Smith. Everyone has a story to tell. <laughs>